Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them, and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. This is part two of a two-part episode that focuses on long-term care. We will continue to explore the different needs and level of care that seniors might experience in their lifetime and the kinds of innovations that can help provide attuned supports at each level. Next, we will look at care for older adults with complex needs that require more intensive support but who are still living at home. Home-based primary care, or HBPC for short, is a model that takes into account the accessibility needs of frail older adults, ensuring that they receive more appropriate primary and community care. Central to HBPC is an interdisciplinary team approach, which encompasses primary care and support services. A 2016 study of Ontario-based care found HBPC to be a highly effective approach to care for homebound adults compared to conventional office-based care. Researchers found that practitioners served as an important source of social contact for those often isolated seniors and that the care offered was respectful of and responsive to individual patient preferences, which is a hallmark of patient-centered care. House Calls is a primary health care practice for homebound seniors living in Toronto. It is led by Dr. Mark Novachinsky and Sprint Senior Care. In this interview, Dr. Novachinsky talks about this approach to care and the need for more home-based practices. Can you talk about House Calls, the services you provide, and how a home-based care practice works? So the program we run is designed to meet the needs of uh, frail housebound seniors who have great difficulty accessing office-based care. So we provide uh, a wide range of services to help those for whom care at home is a necessity and not just a convenience. And we provide ongoing uh, interprofessional and primary care. We're a team of 19 people, including physicians, nurse practitioners, occupational therapists, social workers, physiotherapists, our team coordinators. And we serve at any given time a population of 450 seniors with an average age of 89. Our patients tend to be medically complex. They have six or more concurrent comorbidities. They're on 10 or more medications. And we are providing a lot of chronic disease management and we manage acute exacerbations of their chronic illnesses and then acute illnesses on top of their chronic illnesses. And we also make it possible for our patients uh, to uh, live out their days at home and die at home. So we do a lot of end-of-life care as well. What does a typical day look like for a house calls practitioner? I'll talk about myself. Um, I, I generally see about eight patients a day. I do uh, see people on an ongoing basis, just a routine, you know, monthly visit for, for many people. And uh, we, we sort of, you know, scratched our heads. We didn't really know how, how often do we need to, to visit people or should we just wait for them to call? And what we discovered is if you wait for people to call, they don't want to disturb you. And they don't call. And meanwhile, their congestive heart failure has gotten worse. And, you know, they're on the verge of ending up in hospital. Uh, but if we visit monthly and we monitor their various chronic medical conditions, we can see downward trends before they become obvious and we're able to intervene. And uh, by Doing this sort of hands-on chronic disease management, we do avoid a lot of hospitalizations and keep people in, in better shape. And, uh, and we stay connected with them. We stay connected with their caregivers. We support them. So our practice, uh, how it differs from pretty well any other setting is we don't have access to a lot of testing. So we have to rely on our clinical judgment and our clinical skills. So we've all gotten very good at doing physical exams. 
And so it's very much a, a sort of low-tech, high-touch approach to clinical care. So those doctors who you know need to do an x-ray to confirm a diagnosis of pneumonia are going to be disappointed with how we do things because uh, I can't send a patient for an x-ray without putting them in an ambulance to emerge, and that's the last place we often want to send people. How does your relationship with patients and the level of care to homebound seniors compare to office-based visits? Well, I, I think there are really two important points, and that is we are a guest in somebody's home as opposed to a person wearing a blue gown on an exam table in an office. So the general power imbalance between doctor and patient is different when you are a guest in somebody's home and they're not sitting there in a blue gown. The other thing about seeing someone at home is you see their environment, you see how they live, you see how they've lived, you see the family photographs, you see the artwork on the wall, the books, or you see the, you know, the cat feces on the floor and the stench of urine. There's a rich layer of information that would be missed by a patient coming to your office. Patient comes to your office, they, you know, they get dressed up, they do their hair, they put on makeup, they try to look their best. And we see people at home in a very much more relaxed way. And, and because we're seeing them on, a, on an ongoing basis, we see the real them in in their actual lived environment. What are some of the other benefits and health outcomes for homebound seniors receiving care from house calls? So as I touched on, we, um, we probably prevent a tremendous number of hospitalizations by being able to manage uh, uh, chronic conditions uh, competently and prevent exacerbations and treat acute illnesses that, that arise. And we did a study a number of years ago looking at patients that were enrolled into our program after discharge from hospital. And we found that we cut the readmission rate to hospital by over 50%. And our patients who were admitted to hospital, their lengths of stay in hospital were cut by over 70%. So it's a very, very cost-effective way of reducing hospital utilization and improving the quality of life of patients and their caregivers at home. The other important thing about providing home-based primary care is it keeps uh, people healthier longer and delays or prevents the need to move to long-term care. And I think the way our system is currently set up is it funnels people into long-term care. And long-term care is an important part of the continuum of care. But moving to long-term care should not be the default when care at home is more appropriate. Do you have a sense of how many of your patients would end up in long-term care that could stay at home if they didn't have access to your services? So we guesstimate that in Toronto, there are somewhere in the vicinity of 100,000 to 150,000 seniors who would benefit from home-based primary care. And in actual fact, we are probably, you know, between our program and some other smaller programs throughout the city, we're probably meeting the needs of not even 2% of that population. So we are barely scratching the surface. And the consequences of that are that there's a large population of seniors who are receiving uh, inadequate uh, ongoing care. There are people who, you know, used to go to the family doctor. They started going to the family doctor less. They stopped going to the family doctor. Most family doctors don't do home visits. And so they become, to use the euphemism, they're lost to medical follow-up, which is just a politically correct way of saying they fall through the cracks and receive no care until they start bouncing in and out of the emergency department and being hospitalized and, and prematurely institutionalized. So the consequences to the system are very expensive. It's much more expensive to see that cascade happen than it would be to provide adequate home care services and access to primary care at home. What is needed for every senior who could benefit from home-based care to receive it? And what are some of the barriers to achieving broad access? So our government-funded home care system has been chronically underfunded, and the consequence of that underfunding is people get funneled 
into hospital admissions and long-term care admissions. And once you start bouncing in and out of hospital, you will very soon be funneled into being warehoused in a nursing home. And if the pandemic taught us nothing else, it was that nursing homes are not necessarily the best place for seniors to be. Uh, Over 70% of the COVID deaths in Canada occurred in long-term care. And the fear of dying was greatly, greatly exacerbated by this pandemic. And a lot of our patients are obviously very reluctant to go to long-term care. Many of our patients were reluctant during the last year and a half, very reluctant to go to hospital even when they needed to because they were petrified of catching COVID. But the other barrier is that unfortunately, most physicians don't do home visits. Prior to World War II, it was very commonplace for family physicians to do house calls. 30 to 40% of doctor-patient encounters occurred in the patient's home. And then in the post-war boom, there was the advent of the general hospital. We had a growing population. We had a much younger population. And so the focus of healthcare became the general hospital, outpatient clinics, family doctor's offices. So care became ambulatory and patients went to the doctor. The concept of the doctor going to the patient belonged to the horse and buggy days. That, That was something in a bygone era. Unfortunately, our healthcare system is still set up the way it was back in the 50s and 60s when Canada was, you know, the average age of Canadians was 20-something, and now it's much higher. Today, there are more Canadians over the age of 65 than there are under the age of 15. We are a very rapidly aging population, but the way our healthcare system is designed is still trying to meet the needs of, you know, 1950s young Canada. And we need to shift our thinking away from an acute care system that treats one problem at a time to focusing on providing the care to an older population that may have a constellation of problems. A senior shows up in the emergency department in an ambulance. They're confused. They have dementia. They have at least six major medical comorbidities and they're unable to give the eMERGE doc a history, and it's a mess to be sorted out in a system, in a hospital that's overstretched, overburdened, and that's not really a good entry point into care for someone who has a medical crisis on top of all of these comorbidities. So we somehow have to improve access to care other than in hospital settings, outpatient clinics and doctor's offices. We need to provide a lot more care in the home where we're trying to keep as many of these people for as long as possible. Our program, we we now are seven doctors and most of the doctors on our team were residents who were exposed to home visits through our program and did some training during their residencies with us and decided, wow, I, I love this kind of work. I want to do it and join the team. So teaching and training residents and medical students, I think, is a huge area of opportunity and and something we've tried to do on a small scale. We're the largest home-based primary care program in Ontario, and according to Dr. Sinha, we're the largest home-based primary care program in the country. And though I feel proud to hear that, I also feel sad because it means we don't have a lot of competition, which means there just isn't enough care out there. You know, we kind of feel like we're explorers going into a a new galaxy. Well, it shouldn't be out of the norm. It should be the norm. Is there any movement or hope on the horizon that there will be more funding and support for more home-based practices to develop and be a bigger part of the strategy for senior care in Canada? I've been practicing home-based primary care for almost 30 years. I've been doing it full-time since 2007. Prior to 2007, I sort of spent half my time as a normal family doctor in a group uh, setting in a clinic and half my time taking care of housebound seniors. And when I started doing home visits full-time, it generated newspaper articles that someone would close their office practice to do this. It was like so rare. And now it's not as rare. So there's been some improvement and change, but it's still, it's not the standard of care that seniors can expect to have access to care at home. And it needs to become the standard of care. 
it still feels like we're pushing this big rock uphill and there's just so far to go. And at any moment that rock could roll backwards and crush you. But I feel more optimistic than that. I know that was kind of a bleak reference, but as I mentioned, I've been doing this for a very long time. I'm I'm very passionate about the work I do. I'm very committed. I'm 62 years old. I have no plans to retire in my 60s, maybe not even my 70s. I want to keep doing this work because it's so needed and it's very fulfilling. I look at the younger doctors on the team and they just seem so committed, so passionate about the work and all of the disciplines on our team because they see that they're making a difference in the lives of people who are so vulnerable and for whom the system very often fails them. And I think we we simply need to divert more resources from this cycle of hospital admissions of seniors, admit, discharge, admit, discharge, rotation in and out, which is very expensive and not necessarily very effective. Uh, I'll give you an example. A woman was referred to our program. She was in her late 80s, and I started taking care of her in January. And in the preceding year, she had been admitted six times to hospital with exacerbations of congestive heart failure. And she was in five different hospitals in the downtown core. And when I saw her, her heart failure was really bad. And I look at her medications. She wasn't even on the proper mix of medications according to guidelines for the treatment of congestive heart failure, despite having had six hospital admissions. To university teaching hospitals, I might add, these are some of the best hospitals in the country from an academic point of view. And I took care of her for two years, put her on the right mix of medications, followed her up appropriately. Do you know how many admissions she had to hospital in the next two years? None. My care over two years probably cost less than the first two days of any one of her prior hospital admissions. So think of the implications on a system-wide scale of intervening in a small way in every home where that care is needed. Think of the savings to the system and think of the improvement in the quality of life of those seniors and their families and their caregivers. Our home care system has been chronically underfunded. It's sort of the poor cousin of the healthcare system. You know, hospital care and physician care take up the bulk of the budget. And long-term care is another very powerful lobby group. And home care kind of has less influence and say. It's more diffuse and fragmented. And so home care has traditionally been underfunded. And one huge area of opportunity and a great tragedy is that personal support workers are underpaid and don't receive the respect that they deserve for work that is essential and difficult and requires a lot of compassion and care. We need to do a better job of supporting our personal support workers. Again, in the pandemic, we saw so many PSWs fall sick from COVID and many who left the profession because of fear. And it just wasn't worth it to risk their lives and infect their families for so little. More money is needed, but it's not just a question of pumping more money into the system. I think it's a question of diverting money that could be better spent upstream. You know, rather than spend all the money downstream in hospital care, divert some of that upstream to prevent the hospitalizations that require the downstream funding. And when it comes to trying to invest in more of those upstream solutions and encouraging more doctors to go into home-based care, for you when you were starting your practice or if someone else was leaving a traditional primary care practice, is it a sacrifice of income? Is there a financial incentive that's needed in order to be able to have this a bigger part of the mix and options for seniors? You touch on a very good point. I think established family doctors, they have high overheads, you know, they rent space, they employ staff, they have to feed the machine. They're running a business and doing a home visit is not cost effective. In the time it would take a doctor to do a house call, they could see four or five patients in the office. And 
Yeah, they get paid twice as much to do a house call, but they also have to travel to and from the house call. So it's simply, it's just not realistic to expect most doctors to change the way they operate their businesses. But I think if you train young doctors in training who are about to embark on their careers, if they're trained to do home visits and they incorporate that into how they structure their practices, how they come together in groups and decide, yes, we will devote resources to taking care of patients at home, they can have a business plan that doesn't make it as punitive to take time away to do home visits. And actually, it's kind of nice. I used to always love leaving the office to do home visits because in the office, you know, you had people who would uh, couldn't get an appointment, they'd come and ambush you, or you had too many people who wanted to see the doctor but didn't really need to see the doctor. So you were dealing with too many worried well. I don't deal with any worried well. I decide where and when I'm going to do a house call. I'm really seeing the unworried unwell more often than not. So I think we need a cultural change in how primary care physicians are trained and how they're trained to deliver that care. I mean, we do a good job of training family practice residents in doing obstetrics, but with a falling birth rate and an aging population, we don't have mandatory geriatric rotations in family medicine residencies, but we have mandatory obstetrics and pediatrics. When, from a demographic point of view, the, the geriatric training is a, a much greater imperative. So we need to do it. The medical profession can sometimes be conservative. Universities are sometimes conservative and, and slow to react, uh, resistant to change. And change is a constant. It's an inevitability. And with an aging population, we have to do things differently or our healthcare system will continue to be overstressed and will implode. Is there any other aspect that you think is an important part of understanding home-based care and how it fits into the larger system of helping people age safely and in dignity? I think providing home-based primary care allows seniors to age in place. This is where most seniors want to age in place. Nobody wants to move to a nursing home if they could stay at home. Uh, sometimes it's necessary, but often people are forced to move to long-term care because they're just not getting enough care at home. But if they were getting enough care at home, they would be able to stay home. And patients and their families and their caregivers greatly appreciate the services they get at home. It has a huge impact on their quality of life. There's such a high level of satisfaction in surveys, uh, very, very high, high rates of client satisfaction in receiving home-based primary care. So it works, it's cost-effective, and it's what people want and like. So why not give it to them? We're dealing with a generation of people that built this country, that grew this country. Uh, through my career, I've, you know, I've taken care of the Canadians who came out of the Depression, who fought in the Second World War, who were the workers and professionals during the post-war boom. They built the country that we enjoy today. And for God's sakes, give them comfort and dignity in their waning years. They deserve it. Is there anything that we can do individually or collectively to try to advocate for more funding, for more support, for this to be a bigger part of the support that's available to the aging population? You know, on an individual basis, uh, people and, and families, anybody who has an elderly relative should lobby their, their MPPs and their MPs to, you know, hey, we need more care at home. We need more services at home. What are you going to do about it? It unfortunately, we go through election campaigns and we get all kinds of vague promises about making healthcare better. But, you know, these issues are very often, they're too complicated and they get swept under the carpet and ignored. I think it just have to make our politicians and policymakers uh, aware and accountable for uh, a growing public health crisis, and that is the aging of the population is inevitable. And if it's not dealt with in a smart way, it will create a healthcare crisis in and of its own, and it's preventable.
Another prime example of Canada's long-term care system being underfunded is its reliance on unpaid caregivers. In 2012, an estimated 8.1 million Canadians aged 15 and older had provided unpaid care to a chronically ill, disabled, or aging family member or friend in the previous year. These are caregivers who are largely untrained but provide critical care to those who need help with everyday activities like cooking, bathing, cleaning, errands, giving medication, and they do this work for free. The majority of these caregivers are women who spend an average of 20 hours per week in a caregiving capacity. And we also know that 35% of these caregivers are working and must balance jobs with their caregiving responsibilities. The value of these unpaid hours of labor by family, friends, and neighbors is estimated to be just under $9 billion. The concern is that the high level of stress, burnout, and the growing inability for others to give care that's unpaid will greatly impact the overall level of care and further weaken a system that is already failing to meet the needs of Canadians. The final interview focuses on seniors who need the most care. They have complex care needs and are living in a designated building like a nursing home. We have seen the many failures of providing adequate care in nursing homes both before and during the pandemic. Luckily, there are models that are proving that another approach rooted in providing patient-centered care with dignity and compassion is viable and should become the new standard of long-term care, particularly for people with dementia. Called Dementia Villages, these communities of care are designed to give the residents freedom of movement and choice within a safe and supported environment. The first dementia village in the world opened in 2009 in the Netherlands, just outside Amsterdam. The Hojue is a specially designed village with 23 houses for 152 seniors living with dementia. The village has a bar, restaurant, theater, grocery store, streets, and gardens, all for residents to use and enjoy. The Hojue is completely publicly funded and runs on a budget that is the same as conventional nursing homes. Other countries around the world have followed this example and have developed similarly designed dementia villages, including Canada. Providence Living, in partnership with Island Health, will open Canada's first publicly funded dementia village in Comox, British Columbia. Providence Living Place, together by the sea, will feature smaller households that support freedom of movement, access to nature, and interaction with the community, including intergenerational connections. Candice Chartier is the president and chief executive officer of Providence Living. She talks about the design of Providence Living Place together by the sea and how this model can become the new standard for long-term care in Canada. Can you describe Providence Living's new long-term care campus that's based on the Dementia Village concept? The concept of Dementia Villages have been garnering a lot of attention across the world. And basically what we did was we partnered with Island Health and the BC Ministry of Health and what we want to do is create an innovative village at our existing site where the old St. Joseph's Hospital was and our long-term care home called The Views. So the village will include 155 long-term care beds, an adult day program, and it will share a whole bunch of different features similar to the ones that are currently operated in Europe that we've done a lot of research around. So different aspects around environmental design to support people with dementia to safely go in and out and engage with the community. So we're doing small household living units that will really foster the non-institutional home-like setting where, you know, at any given time there's access to outdoors, a whole bunch of opportunity to participate in more meaningful activities, and really with the autonomy of the residents being in at the very beginning. The planned village will also include different amenities such as a bistro, art studio, general store, a child care center, a thrift shop, a community center, a chapel, gardens, and a performance space. And then ultimately what we want to do is, because it's on a 14-acre piece of oceanfront property with incredible views, we want to be able to optimize the rest of that footprint to create a whole continuum of care so that people can basically age in place. What was the impetus for the project? And you mentioned Island Health as one of the stakeholders. Are there other stakeholders that have been involved in the development? 
it was really in recognition that seniors care had to radically change. And if anything, the pandemic has brought that into the forefront. So at the time, Providence Healthcare and St. Joseph's General Hospital Board and their executive all came together with the single focus to reimagine what seniors care could be like in BC. So out of that, in 2017, that's when Providence Living was created. The whole intent was to have an independent organization which could be dedicated to excellence in seniors' care across the province. And Providence Living, being that entity, would bring a greater focus and resources to work towards improving the services and the outcomes for frail seniors, as well as those living with dementia. The current home, The Views at St. Joseph, was looking at the property it was on. It's an aging infrastructure. The partners came together and they created this concept of Providence Living Together by the Sea. So the boards and the senior leadership of Providence Healthcare, Providence Living and St. Joseph General Hospital worked together and they developed this vision for Canada's first publicly funded dementia village on the 14-acre campus. They did a lot of research around what was out there across the world. While the inspiration for the Comox project was largely from the globally acclaimed Dehogwe Dementia Village, it's not our goal to just replicate that and the physical design of the village. We're focusing more on the underlying principles and concepts of their model because what we do agree with is that home is not a place but a feeling. And so that's where it grew from. It sounds like an amazing place, amazing property. I remember my first visit to the site and I was, oh, if I wanted to age in place and have somewhere that was going to be the last chapter of my life, this is what I'd want to look at for the rest of my life. The mountains and the ocean and oh, it's incredible. It's a great segue in kind of thinking about how this particular project, but also in general, how a dementia village is different than a conventional long-term care facility. You're moving from an institutional to a social relational model of care. Right now, the institutional model focuses on care, where the new model, the social relational model, is going to focus on living and care, but living being in the forefront. So it's a whole shift of model of care redesign. So right now, when it comes to routines, there's very scheduled routines where we're going to shift to flexible routines. So you work around the capabilities and wants and needs of each individual. When it comes to institutional model right now, you have team assignments and, you know, you've got team members that rotate through looking after a group of residents where in our new model, the team members will assist some residents, but really encouraging their independence. We're not going to be making decisions for residents like we do now. It's going to be decisions with residents. You're looking at the physical environment. Right now, when you look at a long-term care home, it's a workplace. As much as they try not to be, they're an institutional setting where the whole social relationship model is going to be more home-focused. So we want it to look as much like their own home as possible when it comes to activities and programming. Right now, your activities are structured. They're structured around all these regulations that you have to meet. And, you know, in the new concept, there will be planned, flexible, spontaneous activities based on what the mood, what the timing, all of that, it comes into more flexibility. And then even looking at your departmental structure. So it's a very hierarchy structure right now where you've got the different department heads. In our new model, it's going to be collaboration. So you're going to have collaborative teams. You're not going to have that hierarchy concept. Relationship-wise, as opposed to team members caring for the residents, you're going to have mutual relationships. When it comes to community, like right now, it's staff and residents, you know, us versus them, where in the new model, it'll be around what that community involves. It's not just them and us, it's every allied service or every family member or basically anybody that that individual needs to be a part of their community. What are some of the other key aspects included in the new Dementia Village's design and implementation that helps create it to feel more like a community or home than an institutional campus? It was incredible this week because we got to look at the different design concepts that we're looking at. And the vision is to include a smaller household. 
we're going to have 12 max in a household with access to nature. The interior courtyard concept with the spiritual center and we're focusing on nature and plants and animals and, you know, building on that emotional and social connection and in that really home-like environment. Not only will it be bricks and mortar, even the outside is going to be different colors to distinguish it. So it looks like a home with the wooden aspects that looks like shutters. It'll have free flow so that the residents can have that ability to walk freely. Purpose-built spaces that invite movement and activity. So depending on what the residents' needs are, so little communal activities, indoor and outdoor, individual rooms where right now in an institutional care, you've got anywhere from two to four people living in a room together. They're going to have their own independence and autonomy. You're not going to have those cluttered hallways, noisy common areas. It's going to be home-like features, like no nursing station. You're going to have areas where staff and residents can sit together and enjoy a meal. Anything you can imagine that would look like their home. So typically you would see in a nursing station like keys and institutional uh, switches and alarm systems that would all be behind cabinetry that might look like a, a cabinet from their home. It's every little aspect of lighting and flooring and anything that makes them look like a home. Outside, there'll be benches and sitting areas so that you enhance the safety, reduce the incidence of falls, safe physical spaces, and wayfinding. In each village, there could be decor that hooks memories and gives them some sense of orientation that they feel more engaged in that community and less agitation. Very neutral flooring where you're not going to have big patterns with sundowning. They they may feel like they're, they're going to fall because a pattern on the floor could look like a hole to them. So it's incredible the work that's gone into the design. Can you talk about what a typical day might look like for a resident of the village and how that would be different from a conventional nursing home resident? Yeah, I think your typical day would look at a resident would get up when they choose to get up based on what their pattern has been through their lives. You could have a farmer that got up at four o'clock in the morning for 60 years of his life and had a foot soak right after dinner and went to bed. And so that whole model of care redesign where we're going to know that. We're going to do our historical work. We're going to look at providing the training and the empowerment for staff to know that residents likes and wants. What we're looking at is it from two different aspects. So not only the care home design, but the social model of care. So if you look at the, the home design, which we've touched on, you're going to create these purpose-built private spaces for the residents. So the residents will feel they're in a, a private area. They'll hopefully feel more dignified. They'll feel more respected because they don't have somebody in there that they don't know sharing their space. A big part of that is families feeling welcome to spend time with residents at any given time. And the spaces where they feel safe and motivated to ambulate, areas where they can feel that they can reach out and touch a brightly colored handrail that they know that they can hold on to. No clutter, no areas or barriers and free flow. Having those small villages, but with that safety mechanism built in where they can just go outside. You're not going to have codes or barriers where they get to an exit door and they can't go outside. So right now we're talking about what kind of technology do we need in order to facilitate access, but at the same time, not putting their safety at risk. So you've got all of those physical pieces but at the same time, you've got to ensure that staff have the training and the empowerment to be able to support the residents and their autonomy and not feel that they've got a list of tasks that they have to do. The staff will be encouraged to participate in their care, including sitting down and eating. You know, if the, the resident says, oh, sit down and eat with me, then you know, the staff will sit down and eat with them do the activities with them, not just direct them. And then looking at what does the staff need in order to do this? So it's not only looking at the social model of care for residents, it's a social model of care for staff as well. It's going to be a big shift because 
I think that ultimately the staff will look at this as more collaborative, rewarding environment. I think they'll feel less pressured to be task-based. So they won't get to work thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to get eight residents up and dressed before breakfast. We're going to put that above and beyond just the staff. We're going to look at volunteers and families and how they participate. Those increased feelings of dignity, home, joy in every aspect of daily living for residents, staff, volunteers. In the end, I think that you're going to see less sick time, less turnover, because I think staff are going to grasp this model and they'll want to look forward to going to work every day to make that meaningful difference. As one of the first publicly funded dementia villages in Canada, can you walk us through some of the financial aspects in terms of how does you know public funding work and compare to funding for conventional long-term care beds? Yeah, so the government has given us the award, so $52.6 million. So it's based on a, an amount per resident. That's not going to be, you know, the ultimate coverage that we will require. So we're working closely with our different stakeholders and our foundations and our communities and looking at outside of the publicly funded guidelines of of what covers that with bricks and mortar and everything like that. What do we need above and beyond that? And so for us, it's demonstrating to our foundation partners that these additional projects, this is what it would impact um, for the residents and the staff at this village. It's working closely with them and the support of our communities to get that other level of support. You've worked as a nurse and a senior advocate in long-term care. You're moving now into this position, moving forward to New Dementia Village, and you've had personal experience. I saw from your profile that you've navigated care for a parent with dementia. I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the experiences of the deepening cracks in the long-term care system and what the role of healthcare providers like Providence Living are as part of resolving those systemic issues. I was at the uh, Long-Term Care Association for seven years, and every year we were advocating for the same issues. The, the associations are advocating for the same issues today. If anything, it's enhanced uh, need for today because of the global pandemic. So before the pandemic even impacted us, we had a global human resource shortage. We were already feeling that for the past 10 to 15 years. It's only gotten worse. And then the pandemic hit and staff were scared. Some staff got really sick. To a degree, some staff have had enough. They're burnt out and they are leaving the professions. That health human resource issue is probably the one thing that does keep me up at night because of the impact it has on the lives of the fragile seniors we're looking after. I mean, you can build the best infrastructure in the world, but if you don't have the staff to care and provide that care, then you're in a lot of trouble. The other piece is the aging infrastructure and the way that they're approaching this dementia village and working on this changing model of care is actually what drew me to Providence Living because you you know the stats, you know that our population, our demographic timing is against us. We've known this demographic shift has been coming for years and each and every year that our population ages, Each and every year, the incidence of Alzheimer's and related dementia gets worse and worse. At the same time, you've got buildings that were built anywhere from 40 to 70 years ago, looking after a population that 25 years ago, seniors drove their cars to long-term care and parked them in the parking lot. And now, you know, the average life expectancy is 12 to 18 months. They're coming in much frailer, much sicker. You can't get these buildings built fast enough. It's the same across each province. There's not one province that's unique from the other. What other publicly funded dementia villages are being planned for BC and other parts of Canada? And if you see them as an exception or part of a broader movement um, to become the norm for care. This is our first dementia village. I know that we are planning two others over the next probably 
five to 10 years. That's why we're, we're so excited about this because we're going to learn so much from, from doing it for the first time. We're really excited because we see this as our, our first project, but it's not our last. What are some of the barriers to this type of solution growing and becoming a new standard? I think there's a few things when it comes to barriers. I think that, first of all, you have to have a vision and you have to want to be able to change. It's not for everybody. I think some people get into a comfort zone that this is the way we've always done it. And this is the way it needs to keep happening where we're looking at this isn't working. Long-term care isn't working right now to the degree that we would want it to work. At the same time, we know that expectations are changing. Um, We know that pandemic has exposed the fact that we need strong leadership in order to provide optimal level of care and guidance. We know we need to do things differently when it comes to infection prevention and control. It was never at the top of our radar until this happened. And so we're looking at every aspect of how we do any type of approach to care or physical environment. And we're putting infection prevention and control at the top of our our minds. What if another outbreak happened? What can we do to minimize the risk? to the utmost degree. And then you need government to work with you. Right now, there are regulations in place that sometimes don't always support a social model of care. They kind of put you in handcuffs when it comes to creativity and flexibility because you have to meet these regulations and legislation. And so it all has to happen at once. You have to have the right leadership. You have to have the right vision. And you have to have support of your partners, your communities, your families, your government. And you've got to have those foundational partnerships in place in order for this to work. But what about the money piece? I mean, I I can imagine some saying, well, this dementia model is too expensive. We can't afford it. You know, we can make adjustments to what we're doing now. That's more cost effective. What would be your response or what has maybe the case been made for this project to go forward that convinced the province for awarding of the funding to make it possible? You know what? Honestly, we can't afford not to do it. Coming from Ontario, where, you know, we have 35,000 beds out of the 80,000 beds that have to be redeveloped in that province, it takes, on average, three years from the time you put the shovel in the ground to when you admit your first resident. There's no way that you're going to get that many homes built. And I think it's because there's a model of design that restricts you to a degree and impacts the cost of redeveloping these buildings. So I think inflation plays a big part. We've just got to stop building the same homes that we've been building because, if anything, the pandemic has shown us that it's not good enough. Even in these brand new buildings that people have built by these design standards that have been in place since 1970, they still were impacted severely by COVID. So we've got to start doing things differently. And yeah, you know, you do have to up your staff to resident ratio in a village. But if you look at this proactive approach, look at the cost of not doing it. So look at the cost of staff injury. Look at the cost of sick time, of recruiting, because you're churning through staff because they're coming to an environment that is incredibly difficult. Look at the residents who don't want to go to sites because of what pandemic has unearthed. There's going to be more choice. There's going to be more demand from families. They don't want to settle for status quo anymore. And I think what's going to happen is the people that do do things differently and approach things differently are going to be the ones that are going to attract those funders. I don't think it can be just government. I I don't think we should expect government to completely um, be the solution here. Governments can't afford to be the only solution. I think we have to have the courage and the ability to come up with unique approaches to offset those costs and work with your communities, work with different groups, communicate the importance of your small investment at the beginning of this is going to pay off a thousand times when you see the end result. 
One of the case studies I thought was really illuminating, just looking at something as simple as like a urinary tract infection and how when there's care given and enough time spent with a resident that you can see the behavioral changes when someone is, is getting an infection. But if it isn't caught because someone is too busy because they have 10 other residents that they're looking after and they don't catch those or they don't know the person because there's so much turnover, that that can end up being something that leads to hospitalization the cost of not catching it early ends up being one example of just exorbitant costs that were prevented if the model was different. I'm wondering if you can speak to any of the examples you've seen where on the small scale, but, but it adds up to be huge savings where that standard of care, that, that model for care really changes the financial aspects. You just nailed a perfect example around uh, urinary tract infections. If you're doing that social model and changing that model of care, you get to know those residents and you have the support of families and volunteers and you start to identify those patterns and a UTI may not happen because you're encouraging the utmost independence instead of just putting somebody in an incontinent product and changing it on a, on a task focus schedule. What happens with UTIs is they can result in delirium. And what comes with delirium is delirium is sometimes misdiagnosed as cognitive impairment, where that resident could be quite cognitively well, but they have been pushed into a state of delirium because of the UTI. And what comes with delirium is increased behaviors, which could be enhanced injury to staff, but it could be enhanced injury to them because you know, it causes all the uh, aspects that come with delirium and unsteady gait and possibility of a fall. And, you know, 80% of the falls could result in injury and uh, like a fractured hip in a long-term care home can cost upwards of $30,000, $35,000 by the time it's dealt with through the acute care system and the rehab that it requires. Then there's the other piece around even behaviors. And I had mentioned the farmer. There was an incident where a resident was admitted on a weekend. So, you know, it was a crisis admission. So nobody really knew anything about him. He came in, started getting very aggressive the first and second night there and would start acting out right after dinner. And so then they ended up having to get one-on-one staffing. So you've got extra staff in there. They had to do like two uh, every 15 minute checks on him. And then, you know, all of a sudden he's been giving an antipsychotic to decrease the behaviors where come Monday or Tuesday, the family member comes in to visit. It was his wife. And they're like, you know, well, your husband's on this medication now. And, you know, he's striking out and staff can't handle him. And she's shocked because she doesn't know why this is happening and she's feeling guilt and she's feeling, you know, all the pressure and she's thinking it's because she put him in here and she starts talking about at home, this is what he's used to. And that's when they find out that every night after he was finished his dinner, he would have an early dinner because he was up at 4 a.m. out in the in the field. And after dinner, his wife would give him a foot soak, just a basin of hot soapy water give him a foot soak, he would have his soak, he would watch TV, and then he would sleep. And so they started doing that. They looked at his plan of care, they readjusted it, they put it in his plan of care, they communicated it to the staff, his behaviors were eliminated. They got him off of the antipsychotics. And it's like that simple, but it was such a reactive approach where If anything that's going to come out of this change in model of care, it's more proactive and it's something that you implement, not just with the opening of a door of a new dementia bill. It's like we're already well on our way of educating and training and all of that. And our doors won't be open for two years. So you think of those costs, those those physical costs, but also you know, the cost of medication, the cost of hospitalization, the cost of staffing in an already short-staffed environment. What I love is the proactivity of this BC concept. They're not waiting. They're going ahead and 
doing everything they can to look at this possibility and, you know, what is the art of the possible with this dementia village? And it's just the first of many that we're going to be doing and and planning because we think that this is the way we're going to meet those issues that are impacting us now and that are only going to get worse going forward. I think if everybody approached their own organization like that, then I think that there is the art of the possible. I, I mean, I've always, in all the companies I've been with, I've always thought, you know, what's coming around the corner and, you know, how can we do things differently based on, you know, the population we're caring for? And yeah, I know to a degree you're tied into a box of tools that you can work with, but, you know, look outside the box and how can you you change what you're doing? But I think the biggest piece is not settling for the norm anymore. And I think that the timing's right because of the global pandemic and the state of long-term care and, and where it is now and where it has to go. And I think governments are open, more open, if anything, now to to change, and they need to hear what that change impact could be. These examples offer tremendous hope for the future of long-term care in this country. The challenge is to make these approaches the standard for practice. This will require the necessary funding and a drive to embed patient-centered care and social innovation within an integrated national model. For this to happen, we need a collective cultural shift that makes humane and dignified care for the elderly a top priority in Canada. We need greater funding with more emphasis on care that supports the elderly to age in place and receive home and community-based care with nursing homes only as the last resort. There has long been a call among advocates to publicly fund the long-term care system entirely and to eliminate the for-profit entities making money on long-term care. This demand for change has been magnified during the pandemic, as for-profit facilities have been at the center of the waves of COVID-19 cases and long-term care. In April of 2020, the Canadian military was sent into five nursing homes in Ontario that were hardest hit by COVID-19 to take over care. What they found in these facilities was appalling. A report from this operation detailed the condition of these facilities. Soldiers reported witnessing cockroaches, flies, rotten food, as well as residents left in soiled diapers and crying out for help for lengthy periods. These five long-term care homes are all private, for-profit facilities. One of the homes cited as seriously understaffed, resulting in improper care of residents, is owned by Sierra Senior Living. It is one of the largest for-profit long-term care providers in Canada. Sierra Living made a $7.5 million profit in 2019, down from a $21.8 million profit in 2017. It is just one example of the many companies profiting significantly from Canada's fragmented long-term care system. Canada is far behind in the funding it invests in long-term care. We are ranked 18th out of 29 industrialized nations. We can and need to do better, particularly with how we choose to spend this taxpayer money. Compared to other countries, we are far outranked in our investment in community and home-based care versus nursing home expenditures. There's growing support for Canada to rebuild a long-term care system that pays frontline workers a living wage, provides job security, and ensures that staff have the training and equipment needed to do their jobs well. There is strong evidence that we must invest in people to provide care and can no longer rely on unpaid caregivers. The current model is unsustainable and will not meet the needs of Canadians as more people live longer. Instead of a patchwork of services that results in wait lists that further drive up health care costs and that creates confusion for seniors and their caregivers about what services are available and to whom, Canada's long-term care can become a seamless, person-centered system that helps senior citizens get the care they need at whatever life stage and regardless of the amount of money in their bank account. There are many promising solutions already in place. With proper funding and full support, these initiatives can be scaled, and instead of being one-off local or regional projects, they can become the new standard of care across the country. 
How we choose to move forward from the lessons learned from COVID-19 will be one of the greatest tests of our society. Creating a robust, compassionate continuum of care for people as we age is integral to redesigning a new kind of economy. This can and must be part of transitioning us to humane capitalism, a kinder, more equitable economic model. As highlighted in the final interview, the act of soaking one's feet and understanding the importance of this act of love in their life is part of human-centered care. Regardless of culture or creed, treating others as we would want to be treated should be the foundation for a long-term care system and part of the transformation needed to designing a humane future. Thank you to the people interviewed for this two-part episode, for sharing your time, expertise, and for your work to provide compassionate, person-centered solutions and care for seniors at different stages of living. Thank you to my parents, Hugh and Donna Tranum, who served as inspiration for this episode. Both have been involved in healthcare. My dad as an advocate for more affordable, equitable healthcare for organizations and individuals. And my mom, whose career as a nurse and massage therapist has been dedicated to humane care and healing. Thank you to Leslie Corbet, who assisted in the editing and production of this episode. To learn more about those interviewed, follow the links included in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. Be sure to subscribe to listen to upcoming episodes in this series. Take care and be well.